Shepherd, and this is my weekly podcast to share the story of what happened in the murder of my cousin Debbie Carter in our small Oklahoma town, and how finding out that the two men convicted of that crime were innocent, and how that turned into a quest for truth and accountability. In the last episode, I mentioned that we would continue to talk about the original case Um, with Debbie and what we were told and as I look through you know the mountains of paperwork and articles and depositions I really began to see how the Debbie Carter case shifts to not being about Debbie anymore and what I mean by that is that once there were suspects in this case it went from being about the you know the Debbie Carter case to the Ron Williamson and the Dennis Fritz case so to again like where she's not even mentioned by name or the fact that she's always referred to as a barmaid which just used to infuriate my family as if that was you know all that she ever was But when you step back and you look at all the court records and um, how the case was investigated, it seems like Debbie just, you know, Debbie as a person just became another piece of evidence like anything else, like the hairs or, you know, the electric blanket cord or you know any of those things that were labeled and cataloged you know and the bits and pieces of things that were removed from her apartment and it's so disheartening because this all started with her this case was about her and in all the books and the documentaries none of it is about her she's always kind of this side note so back to the original case so at this point all the roads are leading to Ron Williamson and um, in April of 1983 the Detective Smith reaches out to the criminal or the behavioral science unit of the FBI and ask them for assistance in this case because they are, you know, explaining that this, even though they know, they know who did it, they really, you know, I guess they're having a difficult time tying this case to, to their suspect. And so we didn't know who the FBI was. I mean, as far as this you know, behavioral science unit, we had no idea who they were or what they did. Now we have a little better understanding because there's, you know, books and documentaries like Mindhunter and things like that. But at the time we were just thrilled that, you know, another agency and certainly a higher up agency was looking into her case. And so 
again, it's it's kind of quiet, and there's you know a not a lot going on. But then Ada is hit with another devastating crime, and this was in April of 1984, and a young woman that was doing her student teaching disappeared from her job and her name was Donna Denise Haraway and she went by Denise I believe and while the cases aren't tied together at all as far as having really anything to do with one another other than how they were investigated and prosecuted later on so I'm not going to talk a lot about that case um primarily because I think so often they're meshed together almost like one. And I know a lot of it is just by happenstance that, you know, it was their names were Debbie and Denise, and they both had brown hair, and they were, you know, relatively the same age. But I really think that they both deserve their own space and time. And like I said, while I will talk a great deal about her case later, just to give you a point of reference, though, um, so Denise disappears from her job in April of 1984. Within days, they have composite draw drawings of who they believed took her. So by October of 1984 they have video confessions in November Tommy Ward and Carl Fontenot are charged with her kidnapping and murder by September of 1985 they're convicted of that crime without a body and in January of 1986 though Denise's remains were found and none of the confessions that they had matched how and where Denise was found and they're still fighting those cases today all that to say that the Haraway case was wrapped up and you know all tied up with a bow not even two years later after Denise's disappearance and there's really not a whisper about Debbie's case I mean she had kind of become this other girl and in the meantime you know my family is falling apart certainly peppy anyway and I remember one instance that always sticks out in my mind where she had come to the house in the middle of the night. There was a, you know, knock at the door, and my mom, you know, quickly got up to go see what was going on, and and I was right behind her, and Peppy was clearly, I remember she was slurring and kind of stumbling around, and she kind of stumbled off the porch, and she unbuttoned her jeans and just squatted and peed right in her front yard. And I was kind of taken back because I'd, nev I'd never seen her like that before. And I remember she had dirt 
on her clothes and in her hair. And that's because she had been out the cemetery laying on Debbie's grave, just, you know, praying for God to give her back. And I really, I have no memory after that of what I'm sure my mom brought her in the house, but I don't really remember if I was afraid of her or afraid for her. I just knew that it, it just wasn't her. And, you know, this time we were really concerned why they were not arresting Ron Williamson. I mean, if they knew that he did it and they, you know, had all this stuff on him, um, we just didn't understand how they could have convicted these other two. And Debbie's case, from, you know, what we were learning was just so clear. And so during this time, Ron goes to jail for what I, I believe it was a hot check. He actually goes to prison, and he got a pretty significant sentence. It was like five years or something. And it was explained to us that that was their best effort at the time to get him off the streets because that's all they could do at this time until they could wrap everything up with Debbie's case. And I remember when, when he got out of, of jail for that because he still lived down the street and I guess he didn't have a phone. And so he would come down the street and use our neighbor's phone. He knew my neighbor across the street, and he would use his phone. And we were scared to death of him because we just knew that he knew who we were. And I can remember how, I guess, when he would go down there, then he would go outside and sit on the curb and sit there and smoke, and he was facing our house. And so we were just sure that he was watching us. You know, now I look back, I don't, I don't even know if he knew who we were. But I remember the day he got out because my mom had agreed to let me go to a football game, a Friday night football game. And that was a rarity for me. That was not something I got to do. And I certainly, if I ever got to go, was not allowed to run around and hang out in the end zones and stuff with my friends. I was not a frequent football fan until... I was a high school cheerleader, but, you know, my mom was concerned that he would go to the game because everybody, you know, went to the games on Friday nights, and, you know, I had strict instructions to sit with my friend's parents, and I was not to get up and that kind of thing, and um, and I didn't argue about it. It's, it's just, it, you know, it's just the way that things were. And so, during this time, also, the FBI profile comes back. And I guess it was more than a year later, just right at a year later, um, and Detective Smith had reported in the paper that while he would be keeping the profile, you know, confidential 
that much of it complies with what is already known about the chief suspect and that the profile goes as far to project the killer's age range probably how he would dress and the type of vehicle he would drive so that was what I remember about um, that information being relayed to my family as well that the profile from the FBI was that specific and that all of those things pointed to Ron Williamson which was just you know another you know nail in his coffin as far as knowing that he he did this and so again there's not not a lot even after that there's really no mention of Debbie's case again for the better part of about two years and what happens next was that Peppy gets a call she'd actually gotten off one morning and had gone home and she gets a call from Detective Smith and she he asked her he was kind of dramatic and he asked her if she has a gun and you know that she needs to hurry and get there and so she you know knew that it was something you know big about the case and so she gets in her car and puts the gun in the front seat and drives you know like a bat out of hell to the police station and when she gets there she is met with detective smith as well as the district attorney um his last name's Peterson, and she had never met him up to this point. But this is where they really kind of introduce Dennis Fritz and explaining that um, who he is and who he is to Ron, and that they feel like there was two, and and. I'd mentioned in the previous episode that there were no fingerprints. But there was a handprint. It was actually a partial handprint, kind of the side of, you know, like the side of your pinky finger down to the edge of your palm that was found on the lower part of Debbie's uh, bedroom wall. And they had actually cut that um, sheetrock out and had sent it to the OSBI to try to get a handprint, you know, or a match off of it. And it had been, you know, all the, all this time, and they said it was just backlogged and things like that. And so what this meeting was about was to inform Peppy that when prints were first taken of Debbie, when, you know, back in when she was murdered in 82 that they must have not gotten good prints and that this handprint did not belong to Ron Williamson and it did not belong to Dennis Fritz and it therefore it it just had to be it had to be Debbie's um and they must have not gotten you know good prints the first time and so they explained to her that 
they need to exhume Debbie's body and retake the handprint. And Peppy immediately is like, no, we're, you know, we're not doing that. We're not going to disturb her. Um, but he, you know, to tell, to hear Peppy tell it, she says that, you know, Peterson, the detect or the district attorney really puts it back on her and says, well, do you want this case solved? And she says, you know, I want this case solved more than anyone. And he's like, well, then you'll sign these papers. And then, according to Peppy, you know, kind of tells her, like, well, really, I don't even have to ask you that, you know, her dad's already signed them. And I, and I have no idea if that was true or not. I don't know. But they didn't ask her to come with anyone. They didn't ask her... You know, they didn't call my mom or or anyone to say, we need you to bring her down here. They, she was by herself. And so she leaves, she signs the papers, and she leaves the police station. And it was probably, I don't know, five, seven-minute drive from there to my house. And she drives immediately to try to find my mom and my mom happened to be at home at lunch that day and she said she was in the kitchen and she hears the garage door going up and down and up and down and she thought what in the world so she goes into the garage and Peppy is in the garage and she's pushing the the little button that makes the garage door go up and down and she's so disoriented she thinks she's at the front door and she comes in and she's just rambling and carrying on about how she is going to get the chance that nobody ever else gets. That she's going to get to see her and that she's going to get to hold her. And, and my mom is just beside herself. She can't figure out what she's talking about. And so she finally, you know, gets her calmed down and explains that, you know, Peppy explains what's going to happen and she is just obsessed with this idea that she is going to be there when they bring her out of the ground and she is going to get to see her and hold her again and my mom actually took her and had her admitted into a mental health facility but by the time my mom got home Peppy had already checked herself out and met my mom back at the house because she was not going to stay. And at that time, my mom told her, you know, I can't do this with you every day. I can't relive this. You know, I have a child and a job, and I, I can't go through this every day with you. And it was so sad to witness how my mom and Peppy had you know they had survived their childhoods they had been together through marriages and kids and divorce and even Debbie's murder but the signing of those papers would be the thing that pushed Peppy over the edge 
and severed the relationship with my mom and they would never be the same again and I'm not sure how much time passed maybe a few weeks or so that Peppy was actually at work and a co-worker came to her and asked what was going on out at the cemetery that they had backhoes and stuff out there and of course Peppy knows immediately what is happening and she clocks out of work and races across town and when she gets there there's no one there there's just an open empty hole and she said she sat on the edge of the hole with her legs kind of hanging down and you know just wondered what she looked like and how she was and it's just so sad to think about how we bury someone and let someone go with such ceremony and and at some time in the next day or so Debbie was lowered back into the ground and buried all over again no family and no friends no flowers and there was no one there and I think later Detective Smith told Peppy that you know he was there because Peppy really wanted to know what she looked like and that he said that it sounded like when they opened the vault that it sounded like when you open a coffee can that 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 seal had been broken and that she looked exactly the same. So in the next episode, we'll continue to talk about the exhumation of Debbie and how that shifted not just everything in the case but also in my family as well so again you can go to defendingtheline.com for other information and updates as well as defending the line on instagram and i thank you for listening